You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. And it is my pleasure this Sunday to conclude our series called Invited. And we've heard so many great things over the last few weeks, as Pastor Martin said earlier. And we've been primarily following through the book of Acts and tracing the theme of God's passion for a diverse church. This idea that God welcomes all kinds of people to join his family. And if you've missed any of the messages, again, I just want to say, please go to our website or go to our YouTube channel and you can do that. And it has been a great series and I've really enjoyed it. And even though right now we are bringing it to a close, I want to put this to us today, church, that in some ways we have only just got started. We have only just got started because I want to put to us today that God's vision for diversity goes way beyond our own, way beyond our own. I love this church at CLM. I love what it stands for. I love the representation of different cultures. It is amazing. And it's right to celebrate that. But as I said, God's passion for diversity goes beyond that we, anything that we can ever imagine. And to help us understand this a little, I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 7 briefly. Revelation chapter 7. This written by John, the writer of Revelation. And I'm going to read from verses 9 to 12. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And what we have here, is a picture of what God has seen in relation to the future of the people of God. Basically, what God is going to take us towards in the last days. Now, if you've read Revelation, it's a very apocalyptic kind of a book in the Bible. And so I'm not going to have time to unpack everything today as we get to chapter 7 where we are. But simply to say, John sees a stunning vision of the future which is this multitude of every people, every group of people that could be seen or known, every language, every tribe represented, and it can't be numbered, where everyone is invited. So according to the Bible, world history is moving towards this vision of a multicultural church which cannot be numbered. That's an amazing vision, isn't it, church? That that's what we're moving towards, and that's what the Bible says that we will see in the future. And as we've been journeying through the book of Acts, we can see that the gospel movement started from one place. It started in Jerusalem. But then what we see is that it started to spread to different people, to 
Gentiles and people getting saved, other people start getting invited and start to access Jesus and the gospel. And we see it starts to spread because everyone, as I said, is invited. And today, we have to understand that the baton is over to us. <laughs> you know, if you read the book of Acts, it's interesting. It, it doesn't really end when you get to chapter 28, the last, the last chapter. It's kind of left half finished. You've got Paul who's in Rome, and then it kind of finishes as he's been preaching the gospel to those in Rome. And I think it's intentional because it's meant to make us see that throughout history now, it is over to us to let people know that they are invited, that they have a place at the table. It's in our hands now, church, that we would go and let people know of different tribes, different nation, that Jesus invites them to the table. Anyone with me today on this? That God wants everyone to come to know him. And I'm just gonna give us a few figures, a couple of figures, just to help us. These are estimated just to help us understand a little bit of what our task might look like today when we get this into our hearts and in our minds. Now, according to the Joshua Project, there are approximately 17,000 people groups that exist today. Not 17,000 people, that would be a small world. 17,000 people groups that exist today. And again, this is an estimation and of those people groups, approximately 7,000 of those are unreached with the gospel. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And, and I will say again, this is an approximation only. But it makes me realize that if we're going to get to that picture in Revelation of every person, every tribe, every language represented, we've got work to do, church. The baton's in our hands and we have much to do in order to get there. And I say this because it's really important that we get this. Of those 7,000 people approximation, of those 7,000, Jesus wants all of them found. He wants all of them to know the gospel. He wants all of them to be set free. Not just a few of the countries out there or a few of the nations, not just the most powerful nations, not just the ones that have the most money or have the most exotic beaches. He wants all people found because that's what the gospel is about. Everyone is invited. And it's great that we're invited to the table, you know? As we think about it today, as Christians today, we're here and we know that we are invited in God. We have a place at the table. But at the same time, it should burden us in a good way. It should burden us that there are some people that are still not at the table and that there are more people out there to be found because God invites everyone. And hopefully we can see that if we're going to get to that place, we all have an important part to play in this. And uh, I want us to go back now briefly to the book of Acts. We're going to go to Acts 15. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to look at Acts 15. And we're going to just look at some verses there in a moment. But I'm just going to give a little bit of context. So if we look here, the church had grown following the great commission of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. And as we said, it started in Jerusalem with a predominantly Jewish church in Acts 2. And then what we then see, as we've heard over the last few weeks, is that the gospel starts to gain momentum, not just among the Jews, but also the Gentile world. And so many of the people start coming to faith. Gentile believers in Antioch, as we heard, Cornelius' encounter with Peter, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch with uh, Philip, we see that the gospel starts to spread. 
And whilst this momentum among the Gentiles was generally seen as a positive thing, generally it was a positive thing when they were looking at this and when the church was seeing this happen, at the same time, it also caused moments of disagreement. Sometimes it caused moments of disagreement that kept popping up because there were certain people from a Jewish perspective saying that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they must also be circumcised and they must also obey the whole law of Moses. And so to these influencers, faith in Christ wasn't enough. They were saying, look, if you want to be saved, you need to be a Jew. You need to be like us. You need to be like us. You need to adopt all of our customs because that is that is the way of this gospel because they believe Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, which he is. But we know he's the Messiah of everyone who calls upon his name. But they had this belief that, well, if he's the Jewish Messiah fulfilling the scriptures, which is true, then you should really become a Jew then so then you can access this properly. And so, to no surprise to us today, this became a point of tension because what this meant was that some Jewish believers were then refusing to sit at the same table as Gentile believers. They wouldn't eat together because they were basically saying, look, we can't be with you because you're not the same as us. And so, as normally happens when there's disagreements and we need to get a final decision, the church in Acts 15 appointed the first apostolic council. A council to say, look, we need to deal with this issue once and for all. And it was led by, we believe, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who it seems was the... uh, the leader of the Jerusalem church at the time. You also got Peter there as well. You got Paul and Barnabas. Basically, it's big hitters at the table. You've got these really, really big apostles there, people who have really helped the gospel spread. And it was so that they could consider this issue. And many Bible scholars say that this moment was a watershed moment for the church. When they came together, it was a really important moment for the church. Don't underestimate the significance of what was happening here. Because the question that needed addressing was, does someone need to become a Jew in order to be Christian? And they needed to make that definition. Does someone need to become a Jew in order to be a Christian? And I suppose the challenge towards the council who were making this decision was this, is could they have a vision big enough to see that the gospel wasn't just a reformation of Judaism, but it was actually the good, the good news for the whole world. That actually, it wasn't just a sect of Judaism, but actually, this is now the international family of God, and this is what God has done. And to find out what was decided, well, I want us to just read the decision that was made by James as the council came together and they heard from Peter, heard from Paul and Barnabas, and then James, it seems, was the one that had the great honor of making kind of a final decision as what needed to happen. So what we're going to do, we're going to read from Acts 15, verses 19 to 29. So if we want to go to 19, I'll read from there. And it says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, 
called Barsabbas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, with them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And I'm just going to restate what was said in verse 19, the first verse of that passage. This is what was decided by James. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And basically what James was saying, and he unpacked it with some other things there, is that the gospel must be accessible. It must be allowed. People need to access the table. Yeah, it isn't just for one people, but actually it's for all people because everyone is invited to be part of God's family. And I just want to draw out three things as we conclude this series that will help us see what this decision meant for the church back then. But what does it also mean for us today? What does it mean for us today? And the first thing I want you to see is this. Their decision encouraged connection between all cultures. You see, one wasn't required to become a Jew in order to be, in order to be saved. What mattered was faith in Jesus Christ. If one declares that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, then that's enough. So if someone from Asia, if someone from Nigeria, from China, from parts of Europe, Romania, Poland, Britain, America, if they say that Jesus is their Lord and Savior and they repent, then they are included. They are invited. All is needed is faith in him. That is enough. And so what James was saying from a community perspective, he was saying, basically, we have to see each other as brothers and sisters. In order to get this, we have to see each other as brothers and sisters and embrace one another. See, their decision emphasizes this, that the church is not a body where everybody has to look the same. We don't have to look the same, but it is a diverse body that embraces each other's differences. And even though there was no requirement for the Gentiles to become Jews, the question for both sides was, would they be willing to see each other as brothers and sisters and then respect each other's perspectives? Respect where each side were coming from so that they could be one community. So would the Gentiles, in a sense, would they accept the ceremonial food laws that were being put to them so that they could connect and be at the same table together? Would they be willing to do that? And in the same way, would the Jews accept that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and don't need to abide by the whole law of Moses because it would have burdened them? And so what we get is this position where both have to come together. The, the basic idea is this. Can they come to terms with the fact that neither will be the same, but both still belong? Neither will be the same, but both will still belong. You see, and I, I believe that part of the challenge of this series and what I've just unpacked there a little bit is it asks us the tough questions. 
or the questions to do with our heart, which is, am I willing to lay down my own preferences and instead prefer one another? Am I willing to lay down my own preferences and instead prefer my brothers and sisters so that we can be a thriving, diverse community? And Romans 12.10, it said this, it says, it says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. You know, we all carry preferences, don't we? We all have things that we want to do, which other people don't like to do, you know? I totally get this in life. Sometimes it can feel a bit frustrating, if I'm being honest, because sometimes I think everyone is like me, but not everyone is like me, and I've had to learn that over time. You know, we've been talking a lot about food over these last few weeks, about dining at the table and different food things, and, and uh, Mark Beswick a few weeks ago talked about uh, jacket potatoes being a side dish, not a main dish, which I thought, I thought was hilarious, although I do disagree with you. If you put chicken curry on jacket potato, it works as a main dish. I've had it, it tastes good. And one of the things I've learned is growing up in the UK as an Indian man, and you know, being brought up as an Indian man who lives in the UK, I love spicy food. Right? Anyone else love spicy food, yeah? Sorry if this offends anyone, but I don't like bland food. There has to be a little bit of a kick. You know, I was brought up where if we went to a restaurant, my mum was one of those people that had an emergency bottle of hot sauce in her handbag, you know? <laughs> Just in case it needed a little bit extra. But what I've come to understand as well is that whilst hot food is my preference, at the same time, not everyone is the same. And if someone wanted to come round my house for dinner, even someone from church, you know, you're welcome. You're welcome to come round and come and speak to me. Um, I'll let my wife know after the service, but you know... If you all can come, yeah, come and feast at mine. I'm not then going to say, okay, here, you have to eat this really spicy food. Because they might say, well, I don't like spicy food. The problem there is that I'm not making my table accessible. I'm forcing my preferences on someone. But I, for me, the most important thing is that I win the person. That the person knows I care about them and I love them and I care about their preferences as well. And so I wouldn't do that. You know, I'd probably give them ketchup or mayonnaise if that's what they wanted. <laughs> And what I'm trying to say is this, is that it's really important if we understand this, what this series means, we have to move towards each other and lay down things that will restrict that. That doesn't mean you lose your culture, but in our culture, we understand that not all of us are the same, but we still belong. And therefore, we prefer one another instead. You know, if we're going to reach more people with the gospel, then it's going to require us to make the table accessible. We're going to have to make the table accessible. It doesn't mean that the gospel message changes. We don't change the gospel. But we must let people know, church, that they are invited as they are. They're invited as they are because God has made them that way and they are not a mistake. That is exactly how God wants them and we need to see each other like that as well. You know, I've been in some social settings in the past and I think Gift kind of alluded to it as well a little bit in her video of a nervousness of going into certain places. But unfortunately, and thankfully, this has not happened in the church in any way, but I've been in some social settings in the past where I've walked into a room and it was very clear I wasn't welcome. No one said anything. They didn't need to say anything. They will know what I'm on about. 
You just know. Mm. I've changed the atmosphere and I've not even said anything. I've walked in and I've known straight away I need to get out. And it's tough and it's not nice to know that people judged you just by the way you looked. And the problem was this, is that I left and I never returned. I left and I never returned. And, and the reason I share that is because when we think about the church and that everyone is invited, we have to remember this, that we have to let people know that they are welcome as they are, yeah, in the way that they are and that we want to move towards one another. Because if we don't, what will happen is people who are already at the table may leave the table or people who we're trying to reach will not come to the table because they will see it's not for them. See, when we move towards to one another, we say, I'm willing to learn more about you and I'm interested in your background and I want to connect with you because that's what God has done in his church. He's made it possible that we can connect. Secondly, their decision maintained the need for a kingdom culture. See, the council affirmed that faith in Christ is enough for all people, but faith also has to look like something. <laughs> and we embrace each other's cultures, absolutely. We should do that. We should always embrace people's cultures. But there's also a kingdom culture that connects us all together. There's a way of the kingdom that connects us together, which is really precious, actually, and we can't lose that. See, their decisions specify that the Gentiles needed to stop eating food, sacrificed to idols, certain other foods that were prepared in certain ways, sexual immorality, these types of things. They were saying, look, could you stop doing these things? But I like the way that James said it. He said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond those requirements as we saw. You see, some of these things were potentially part of this Gentile believers' culture. They were brought up and probably they ate certain foods or they did certain things because their culture allowed it. And that, and that is part of us understanding a little bit more about each other, about how we live and what we understand and what we do differently. And whilst their culture was accepted, what I think as well was happening here is that James was also trying to say that whilst our culture is accepted, the voice of the Holy Spirit will always prevail as to how we should live. We are always to live in tune with the Holy Spirit. And he will guide us as to what is right. We may be different, but we all have the same spirit residing within us that connects us together. You know, we need to live and do things that seem good to God, that seem good to the Holy Spirit. Now, I know culture will affirm certain behaviors and go, well, this is what we do. This is how we do it. And I'm totally for us embracing that. That's what this series is about. It affirms certain things, but we always have to ask ourselves, regardless of culture, is this good for God? Is this good in his eyes? Is this the right thing that he would have me do? We have a freedom to express ourselves. We can freely express that we're Indian, that we're Pakistani, that we're English, that we're Nigerian, Kenyan. We can do that. But I like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. He said, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And I try and live by this way in life, by this kind of motto, if you, if you want to call it that. 
Sometimes culture will get it wrong, but the Holy Spirit will always get it right. He will always get it right. You know, when I became a Christian about 10 years ago now, it wasn't a popular decision with everyone in my family because they were used to something different. And because of that, I knew I had to stop certain things that culture said was okay, but I knew wasn't okay. Now, coming from a big Indian family, and it is a big family, and being a Christian, it wasn't always easy at first. And I told them that I wouldn't be engaging in certain cultural practices because they were saying to me, well, these are, these are deemed cultural but they seemed like idolatry. They seemed like something else. And so I had to be clear that I cannot compromise who I am in Jesus now just because of culture. Because some of it was, in my eyes, if I was engaging in certain things, it was to me basically saying, are you bowing to something else other than Jesus? Are you bowing to another God? Or are you bowing to approve man? And I had to be very clear and say, look, I love my culture. I love my family. I love being Indian, but Jesus is my king. Jesus is my king. And so therefore, I'm going to live by kingdom values, regardless of what my background is. Those are the things that connect us all together. Anyone with me today on this? And in terms of witnessing for Christ, when we think about reaching those who are unreached, one of the best ways that we reach people is when they can see the fruit of our lives. When they see the fruit of your transformed behavior, it's amazing how that communicates so much to people. It really does communicate. I know, yes, we definitely need to share the gospel. I'm gonna to come to that in a moment. But when people see that our lives are different and we are changed, surely that's gonna be the indication that they might need to change as well. It's a witness in itself. And I wanna encourage us today to keep a kingdom culture whilst we Embrace our diversity, one of the best ways we witness and make the table open to others is by living as ambassadors of the kingdom so that people will know that maybe they are missing out in being part of what we have and therefore we can invite them in as well. And thirdly and finally, their decision led to multiplication. Their decision led to multiplication. You know, when the decision was made by the council that everyone is invited, it's amazing how the gospel started to spread. You see, their unanimous decision, in a way, liberated the gospel so that it could go global. It was very clear. It was like, this was a once and for all decision. This is a global movement, and we're not meant to stop it from being that. And from Acts 16 onwards, when you read the book of Acts, we see an explosion in the Gentile mission, primarily through Paul and through others. The gospel is multiplied. It goes to Philippi. It goes to Athens, Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Malta, and Rome. God's vision to reach more nations gets expanded with the church. And Paul, who became a Jew to the Jews and a Greek to the Greeks, what he did was he broke down cultural barriers and made the gospel accessible to people who had not known Jesus and had not come from that world before of Judaism. And as I said... It's up to us now. The baton is firmly in our hands to go and make disciples 
of all nations. To let people groups know that they are invited. You know, there are still unreached people, as we saw earlier. There are people unreached. And of those 7,000 that we saw, approximate 7,000, approximately 30 of those people groups are in Coventry. Approximately 30 of them are in Coventry. And I know for some of us thinking, well, how do I reach all these people? How am I going to get to these multitudes? What's going to be the strategy? What's going to be the way? I get it can be a little bit like (laughs) overfacing, but at the same time, we have to respond to the commission. We have no excuse not to because the baton's in our hands. To make us a church that invites everyone of every culture, of every tribe, every background, every nation. And I want to maybe give us today a little achievable target, maybe. Wouldn't it be great if we just made a decision that, you know what, I'm going to try in this next, let's say, 18 months or so, I'm going to try and reach one person. There's approximately maybe 300 to 400 people in this room. That's three to 400 people for Christ. I'm going to try and reach maybe one person. Maybe imagine that, as you know, you have been invited to the kingdom or a seat at the kingdom of of God. You're invited in the table. You've got an invitation. Imagine on there, you've got a plus one. You need to bring one more with you. Imagine that's what God gives you and says, you're coming, but could you bring one more? Could you bring another to the table? Because multiplication could happen. I'm going to finish now with a, a true story because we've shared a lot about stories, haven't we, over the last few weeks? And it's going to share a story of a young Indian woman who, in the 60s, she came to the UK. And she was married and had a very young family. And she settled in the town of Wolverhampton. It was a town then. It's a city now. And she settled there with her family, coming over from India. And she was depressed and was trying to find meaning in life. She tried to find meaning in feeding the birds. She tried to find meaning in going to the temples of her gods, but couldn't find it there. She just didn't have any peace. And one day she was walking in the town center of Wolverhampton and came across a strange looking shop. And she went in and was greeted by a tall white American man called Mr. Summers, who to her surprise, greeted her in her own language, spoke to her in Punjabi, and she said, can, he said, can I help you? And she said to the man, do you do palm readings? Could you read my palm for me? Because she was needing direction in life. To which he said, no, that's against what we believe. But would you be willing to meet with me and my wife, Mrs. Summers, so that we t- can talk to you about Jesus? She said, I would like to do that. She accepted their invitation. And what this Indian lady didn't know is that Mr. and Mrs. Summers were American missionaries who felt God had called them to the town of Wolverhampton. Just to say, if you feel called to Wolverhampton, it must definitely be God. Sorry for those online who are from Wolverhampton. But she felt they felt called to Wolverhampton because they'd heard that in that time in the 70s, there was an unreached population of Indian and Pakistani people and Asian people who hadn't heard the gospel. And God put these people on their heart. He burdened them 
with these people on their heart. And so a few days later, this Indian lady, she met with this couple and they told her the good news about Jesus and that everyone is invited. And there and then she gave her life to Jesus. She repented, she realized that she was a sinner in need of God's grace. Mr. and, Summer, Mr. and Mrs. Summers invited her to the table. And this lady's name was Baksho Chumba. Might not mean anything to you. But the amazing thing about is, is this, is that Baksho is credited as being the first Indian in Wolverhampton to give her life to Jesus. The first. That picture there is taken from the book that was written in honor of Mr. and Mrs. Summers' ministry. And they credit her as being their first. The first Indian convert in Wolverhampton. She was the first. But the story doesn't end there because the amazing thing is, is that that one encounter led to a series of encounters happening. You see, Mr. and Mrs. Summers were so encouraged that she had given her life to Jesus, that she'd given her life to Jesus. One had come, one had come. So they kept reaching out and they kept speaking in the language of the people around them. They kept speaking in Urdu, Hindi and Punjabi and eventually many were saved. Many more people came. Many more people were saved. And amazingly, they were able to open the first Asian church in Wolverhampton in the 70s called the Asian Christian Fellowship. More people came to the table. Many more who were unreached took their place. I think we've got a little picture there. That was the first gathering of that Indian church in Wolverhampton. The first, from what I understand. Because they wanted to make the gospel accessible. They did all services in Punjabi, in Hindi as well, because they had this motto. Mr. Summers is quoted as saying this. He says, an Indian doesn't need to be English to be a Christian. Does it sound like something? They can know him as they are and they can worship him in their culture as they are. But you see, the story doesn't just finish there. See, Baksho, when she came to know Jesus, her life was on fire for him. She couldn't get enough of him and she'd been liberated, she'd been set free. She was lost, but now she was found. And she spoke the gospel to many people. She couldn't help telling people about Jesus. She shared the good news to anyone she could. And she also led members of her family to the Lord. Her mum and dad were also living in the UK. Both of them followed religions from back home in India. And at first they said, no, they weren't interested. But eventually she kept asking them, kept telling them about Jesus. Eventually they came to church and they gave their lives to the Lord. They came to the table. Baksha also had her own children. And so she brought them up as Christians and they came to the Lord. And they also had children themselves and they gave their lives to the Lord as well. They all came to the table. I'm still not finished yet. The story goes on. See, Baksho also was one of nine brothers and sisters. One of nine. And she led some of them to the Lord as well. She led some of her brothers and sisters to the Lord. And they also had children who were her nieces and nephews. And they also came to know the Lord as well. They came to the table. She shared the gospel with them. She continued to make the gospel accessible. And interestingly, one of the people 
who is her nephews just so happens to be this person. Baksho was my auntie. My dad's older sister. And I don't know what you see there. Can I invite the band up, please? But I see multiplication. I can go back. I see many people being invited. Why? Because Mr. and Mrs. Summers made a decision. They were going to make the gospel accessible even just to one person. Just one who they shared the, the love of Jesus with. They didn't make it hard for her or others. And because of that, many people became invited to the, the table. Isn't that amazing? Many were invited. And my question is, could we all maybe make a commitment today? As I said, we might not all need to learn Punjabi or Urdu or a language, or we might not all feel called to the nations, but could we reach out to one person? Could we reach out to one who could lead many others to Christ? Just one person, I don't know, let's start an unofficial campaign, each one to reach one, I don't know. <laughs> reach one person for Jesus. Because who knows, that one could be one of many because we made a decision that we were going to invite someone to the table. I don't know who it is. It could be a family member of yours. It could be a friend. It could be a colleague. And in a moment, we're going to pray. And what we're going to do is, after I've prayed, we're going to open the tables up. And I just simply want you to come to the table as we bring this series to a close. To find someone in the room who doesn't look exactly like you. So not someone who's part of your family, but someone who doesn't look the same as you maybe come to the table with them and break bread together and pray for one another and thank God that God has made his table accessible to all. So thank God that he hasn't made it difficult for us and thank him that we are all invited to the table. But then what I also want you to do is maybe pray for each other as well. Pray that God would empower us to be his witnesses, to go and reach people, even just one person, if it could be one person, in this next season, pray, Lord, give me one person that I can reach. Give me the courage, give me the ability, fill me with your Holy Spirit to go and reach out to others so that people will know that they are invited at your table. Let me pray. God, I thank you that we know, Lord, that you've called our family to yourself, our people of all nations and all backgrounds. And I thank you today through what you have done, Jesus, the work of the cross, what you have done, Lord, you have made the tables open so that we can come and know you, God. We can come, Lord, and know you as our Lord and Saviour, regardless of our background, regardless of our culture, Lord, you invite us. And I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray, God, as we sit here today, as we come to the tables, Lord, Lord, give us a gratitude in our hearts. Remind us again, Lord, what you have done for us and the power of us being invited. And God, we pray as we come, Lord, empower us with your Holy Spirit to be your witnesses, Lord, to go, Lord, and to share the gospel, Lord, with people around us. Lord, even in this next season, give us one person. Give us one person even that we could speak to, that could lead, Lord, to even a mini revival, Lord, 
where many people would come, where many people would take their place at the table, where many people would come to know you, Lord. We thank you, God, that everyone is invited today. We thank you, Lord, that you call us from every different place, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we will get to that picture in heaven, Lord, where there will be a place, Lord, for every tribe, every nation, every tongue represented, Lord, that cannot be numbered, Lord, as we continue to push on in the way that you've called us to go, Lord, to be ambassadors for your gospel. So, Lord, we pray, come and move, Lord. Help us in your name, we pray. Amen.